Hey everybody, welcome to Sanity Shelves, the segment on the podcast Sound of Sanity that you were listening where we talk about books we've been reading. One of us describes a book we've been reading and it triggers an interesting conversation. And in order to have an interesting conversation, you have to have interesting people and those people have to converse interestingly. So who is conversing today? Well, I'm one of them. I'm Nathan. I'm your humble opinion host. We've got the preacher who's a teacher of sanity over there, Benjamin Sulzer. Hello. Hi. Hello. Oh. Hi, how you doing, Ben? Oh, good. Well, why did you introduce the other guy? Oh, it's Pastor Jake. <laughs> <laughs> it's Pastor Jake Wetzel. <laughs> He's the pastor who's a master of sanity. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Everybody's got a cup. an amazing introduction. Oh, Jake, you've read some Sorry. books. What? Oh, go ahead, Ben. Uh, nothing. No. Okay. I refuse. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to hold your feet to the fire on this one. It's fine. Jake, you've yeah. read three more books. Always reading books. Always listening to books because cause it's just a sprawling city and there's lots of places to go and lots of things to do. And so there's lots of drive time. Everything in Evansville is 20 to 30 minutes away. So there's a lot of time to listen. All right. Well, you've got three books that you've listened to that you're going to talk about. So let's talk about book number one. Book number one I is a book I finished since the last time we recorded, which is On Writing by Stephen King. Yeah, it's a good book. I loved that book. I really, really love that book. Lots of good advice in that book. Very fun. I didn't expect it to be as much of a memoir mm-hmm. as it was. I knew, I mean... I think the subtitle is like a memoir on... A memoir of the craft, maybe? Of the craft or on on the craft of writing or something like that. But... You expected it to be an oral history of the move, the 90s, which movie, The Craft. That's exactly right. I'm so excited about this. I disappointed. No, I expected it to be his version of Strunk and White or any number of other things with a bunch of stories. Which it is. It, More or less. It, yeah, it's just like uh, strike the emphasis and reverse it. Right. It's hmm. a bunch of stories with some anecdotal wisdom sprinkled in and then a handful of little little rules in a tiny little section. But man, I really, I just really, really enjoyed the book. Mm-hmm. He's such a good writer. He's super engaging, super fun. and And what you come away with is just this overwhelming, or what I came away with was just this overwhelming conviction that I have not begun to care and to work nearly as hard on on the craft of, say, sermon writing hmm. as he puts into his thrillers. Right. And huh. some of that, as a pastor, some of that's a, a matter of principle, and we've talked about this sort of thing probably on this podcast and in other places. And it's certainly a big part of how I was trained for ministry. We're pastors first, we're not preachers or pulpiteers. And so the idea that some uh, certainly celebrity preachers have of, I put 40 to 50 hours a week into my sermon, that's my job is to stand up and deliver a killer. Polished presentation. Super polished, memorized, beat for beat, point for point. It, with the comedy and the stories and the illustrations and everything just sort of like nailed, like that's my job. 
Clever turns of phrase everywhere. Clever turns of phrase, great use of alliteration. That's my job week to week. And that's it. That's where my job begins. That's where it ends. Right. It, that and doing some like administrative CEO guru leadership type stuff. We hate that sort of thing. I like it when it's done by professional speakers or stand-up comedian. There's any number of professions where I think it's well, wonderful that people talk for a living. Yeah. Well, the thing about a, a comedian yep. is that a comedian is going to be refining his one routine. Mm-hmm that he has been developing for a year and then takes on a road the, on the road and tweaks and refines and perfects the next year. Right. And he's, he may week to week be tweaking his material, but it's all the same material. Right. And so that, that's one thing. But for, a, for a, a, a pastor to take that as the standard or that type of thing as his standard on a week to week basis, well, I guess you can do that if you're exceptionally gifted and that's all you do. Right. But if you're committed to actually being a shepherd and caring for and loving your people, you can't do that. And that's got to be part of how you approach things. You care about the sermon. You care about putting elbow grease into the sermon, but it is a function of your shepherding and care for the people. It's one component of it. And so, it has to be ordered along with the time you spend with the people the ways that you love them and care for them throughout the week and how you prioritize that. And so, where I was just sort of processing a lot of this for myself is on the level of, I never want to be a pulpiteer. I never want to to do that. But we're studying the book of Proverbs mm-hmm. right now. And I've been thinking a lot about the book of Proverbs and the fact that what I, what, what I learned last summer when we were in the book of Proverbs for the first time, this is our second time in the book of Proverbs, is that, and what I've absolutely become unquestionably convinced of, is that when the New Testament says that Jesus speaks in parables, what it means is Jesus speaks in Proverbs. That word in Greek, parabola, is translated in our translation as parables. It is also how you translate the Hebrew word proverb. It is in the Septuagint, it is the book of parabola, the book of parables, not the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is just a much bigger, more all-encompassing thing than the one-line aphorisms that we think of. Mm-hmm. And that would have been understood, but it includes the story. So, we think only the stories, but that is not, I don't think, what was meant when it said Jesus taught in parables. It meant the stories, it meant the illustrations, and it meant the one-liners. And if you think about those one-liners, the Proverbs that Jesus gave us are as or more enduring than anything in the book of Proverbs. The golden rule is a proverb. We think Jesus gave us all of these really sticky, strong rules for life and godliness that we can hold on to and apply to so many situations. So, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's a proverb. And it's amazing because it applies to so much of life. It is such a good rule for figuring out what does it mean or look like to love someone. And there are ways to twist it, and we do it all the time. But still, I mean, that's just the way that Jesus taught. And we can go through and think of all kinds of things like that. It's not what goes into a man's mouth, but what comes out, right? Or what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Right? That's, that's a great, those are great examples of Proverbs, really sticky, simple ways of understanding big things that apply to all, all kinds of life situations. To do that requires a lot of work. And so to be, but it's so helpful. And so we're going through Proverbs 
and we're going through Proverbs thematically. And so the goal is to be as super helpful and practical and sticky as we can possibly be. And that means putting effort and energy into the sermon in such a way that when people walk away, they don't just feel convicted of their sin. That's something that we aim for in every sermon, mm-hmm. right? But they also feel like they've been given a handle or something that they can take with them and apply to all of life. And, and, and that's something that I don't think I had really had eyes to see that Jesus does all over the place. And so that's something that I just want to grow in without neglecting anything else. It's just like, anyhow, so I, that's a, I, I guess a big long riff or way of saying I was really challenged by how hard Stephen King works, mm-hmm. actually. It's, I think it's his work ethic above everything else that shines in his book on writing and his just like nose to the grindstone, inspiration is for amateurs, mm-hmm. kind of, which is, a, which is a Stephen King proverb. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he, he actually, in, in this little book, which is not long, has a, tr- has a tremendous amount of little, little things like that. All good teachers do. Mm-hmm. All good teachers do. And you'll, you find this all over the place, actually. The best dads and the best teachers, everybody's got their shorthand, their proverbial ways of being sure that what is important sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so th- there's a guy in one of my discipleship groups, who, groups who's a Krav Maga instructor. And so I've been absorbing principles that are basically taught to me as proverbs that are just sort of like when everything's down and a, a, a fight is coming or whatever, you've got a couple things that... When everything else leaves your mind, this, this might be what sticks. Hit something soft with something hard. That's a good proverb. Every bad guy has a bad guy buddy, right? This is a simple way of saying, don't get tunnel vision if somebody's approaching you. Every bad guy has a bad guy buddy. Remember, there may be somebody else, right? So it's just like, okay, that's just a, a dumb example. But everything has, has things like that. They're just little quick shorthand checks for you, whether that's a sport, whether that's an instrument that you play, even if it's just fundamentals and and basic things. Mm -hmm. So when you see that Proverbs are how we teach, how we're wired to teach, how fathers and sons, fathers teach sons, how much of our shorthand on a day-to-day basis, even in how we speak to each other, is actually just, we may call them cliches, but actually a lot of them is just is just proverbs, right? So when in Rome, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. A bur- watch pot never boils. A watch pot never boils. A bird in the hand mm-hmm. is worth two in the bush. All of these ways of speaking, where we just have these little shorthand bits of wisdom that are simple and concrete and mean a lot to us, that we can apply across the board, and, and they they just kind of govern our responses and our reactions and inform so much of our our day-to-day lives and wisdom. So, we have a whole book of the Bible dedicated to that, and it is a father teaching his son life wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, and if you study the Proverbs in Hebrew, boy, are they much, like, I don't have an example offhand, and my Hebrew's pretty rusty, but I've done the practice of just seeing, if I read this aloud, how does it sound? 
in the Hebrew, the use of alliteration and just the rhythmic, you can tell if you knew this language, this, this, this little proverb, this little nugget would be much stickier, much more easy to remember than it comes to us in translation. How do we talk about that? How do we get both the wisdom and the value of the sticky one one liner that you can you can take with you and hold with you and carry with you in your heart whenever you're dealing with your marriage or your kids or your money or your emotions or any of the the you're in a fight in conflict in an argument when you're dealing with a superior or a subordinate an authority when you're being rebuked when you all that sort of thing how do you take that and just sort of have it in your heart and in on hand to guide and govern you with the wisdom of God. All that to say, I just was really inspired by, by that book to just put, to take the time, not just with being sure I have the right things to say, but that I also just increase my effort in the how I say it to make it that much more helpful and sticky for people without turning into some kind of dumb pulpiteer or something like that which is just, it's just not a way that I have ever really allowed myself to think about the work of, of preaching. But I cannot go back and read the Sermon on the Mount or anything that Jesus does or says without thinking that now. And without thinking, somebody was criticizing the chosen to me the other day. And they're willing to swallow so much about the chosen, about the image of Jesus on screen and the depiction of this or that and all this extra biblical content. They're willing to swallow all of that. The one thing that they felt like they just couldn't swallow was apparently in one of the episodes or whatever of The Chosen, Jesus is actually working on the Sermon on the Mount. He's like working it out. He's thinking it through or he's talking it out or something like that. He's crafting it. And the idea that Jesus put effort into that and didn't just sort of like stand up and deliver it all off the cuff extemporaneously was really scandalous mm -hmm. to this person. But I cannot, we don't know. We don't know what Jesus did or didn't do, but Jesus was a man. Mm -hmm. And I just cannot, I think, absolutely, if you're talking about the most amazing, sticky, like I can take you through the Sermon on the Mount almost point by point. And, and granted, I've preached through it twice, but still, like, if I were to start doing that, everybody listening would recognize almost all of it. Mm -hmm. It's just that poignant and that pointed and that sticky, that concrete, that it just doesn't matter what part it is. And so it's like, well, okay, we want to be like Jesus. How do, how do we help people? How do we bend down to the poor and the needy? Which is a big part of what Jesus is doing when he's like giving his, look at the birds, look at the lilies of the field. He's just like, he's willing to get down on a knee and really come to people and give them handles, right? He's not just going to say, don't worry or don't be anxious. He's going to say, look at the birds. They don't sow. They don't gather into barns. Your father feeds them. Look at the lilies, of the, uh, look at the fields, the grass of the fields. Your father clothes them with flowers, with lilies. And they're more glorious than Solomon. And you have those images that you then carry with you everywhere you go. You're worried or you're anxious and you're outside and a bird starts chirping and it's there. And you remember the birds 
the grass, the lilies. For thousands of years, there they are. And my father takes care of me. How, how do we do that? And how do we do that without becoming obsessive and without becoming some kind of dopey pulpiteer? But how do we add just a little bit <coughs> extra to be sure we're doing everything we can to be really practical and truly helpful to people? And it's not just Jesus. He was just the best at it to ever live. Paul is actually the same way. And that's why there are so many sticky little verses that, that you don't forget. Well, all of scripture, I think the more you read it, the more compact it feels, the more like, oh, there's just a ton of stuff in every verse. It's like the more that you go over it, the stickier everything becomes, even the things, <coughs> even the things that don't feel like that at first. Not that everything's equally a proverb, but it has that flavor. Right, yeah. right. So, anyhow, I just really, really enjoyed that book. And it's funny, I started listening to it because I owned it. I got it years ago and I had finished a couple books and I, but I didn't have or want to spend any, any money on a new audio book, the next one. And so I was just looking through the books that I'd read and I just saw, huh, at some point I got this and meant to listen to it years ago and I never did. And we're reading a Stephen King book for the book ending. We're reading The Green Mile. And so, I don't know, let me give this a shot see what it's about. And I really enjoyed it. So, and, and of course it applies to all kinds of other things that we do here at Warhorn, whether it's script writing or whatever for the bill or, but yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I figured I've just sat here and done a whole bunch of talking, but I, Stephen King's kind of your guy. And I know that you've probably read this book a couple times and I really only read it once. It's a good book. I mean, it's a good book for writers. It's a good book for <clears throat> Anyone who does this kind of work, like Jake said, it has application to, to sermon writing, to all kinds of things. For anyone who's thinking about how to communicate in an effective manner, it's right up there, I think, with Strunk and White or with William Zinser's On Writing, which is a great book on similar kinds of things. I think those are probably the three that I would give any aspiring writer mm. or... Yeah, um, I've read Strunk and White probably a dozen times, but not in recent years. But it is always worth going back to. I've never actually read Zinzer. Yeah, Zinzer's great. I read him, but it's a long time ago. I, yeah. have, a, I have a copy of Zinzer, but I've never actually... Both I, Strunk and White and Zinzer, you want to find the third edition of both because they both <laughs> went, went woke in the fourth edition. They, <coughs> they both uh, embraced... Well, Strunk actually was dead by the time they did, but they produced a fourth ed edition that not only changed all the rules on gendered pronouns and that sort of thing, but also committed the crime of rewriting White's essays <coughs> to match those rules, which is just really stupid. I mean, mm -hmm. E.B. White is not a guy that just wrote a textbook that you can adapt to each new generation. He wrote a specific essay on how to write yeah. that needs to be left alone. So the fourth edition of Elements of Style is absolutely offensive for all kinds of reasons. Seek out the third. It's readily available. You walk into any used bookstore, you'll find nine copies of it, and you'll find nine copies of the fourth edition, but you want the third edition. Williamson's are also famously st stood for the male inclusive and then got so battered that he, he lowered his defenses in, the, in his fourth edition. So you want his third hmm. edition too. But yeah, anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. I read a book by Annie Dillard, The Writing Life, years mm -hmm. ago, <clears throat> and I want to say it was pretty good. I mean, Annie Dillard is weird and highfalutin, but 
<clears throat> she had some stuff that was sticky enough. I still remember it. Mm-hmm. Some basic handles for what riding is like. Compares it to flying in a stunt airplane, <laughs> which she did with a friend. She was like, I want to throw up. This looks really fun when you do it, but to be with you kind of sucks. I, I think one frame I use for all this stuff is, are you being kind to your listener? Yeah. Like, for example, when I am listening to a sermon, it is just simply true that if you go for a long time without an illustration or without a story or something, my mm-hmm. mind may wander. But the second you say, yesterday something happened to me, I snap back. And that's universally true for everybody. We're self-interested. We're interested in people. We're interested in mm-hmm. stories. And so... Well, and beyond that, every preacher has the problem of knowledge, which is you have lived in the theology, in the abstraction of what does this text mean for so long that you carry the abstraction and you understand the abstraction. Right. And you've studied and you've been to seminary and you've read the theology and the systematic theologies and the biblical theology textbooks and everything else. And so you are able to operate on the level of abstraction with something that you have a a relative level of expertise in. When you take that level of abstraction and simply demand that the person in the pews follow you on the level of your abstraction, it's really uncharitable and it's really not helpful. And bringing everything down from that level of abstraction to something people can actually wrap their minds around is just the essence of what makes a good teacher. I mean, it's everything from, and you see it across the board in the, cla- in the classroom. If you're teaching a, a, a second grader or a first grader subtraction, is it going to be easier for them to grasp the concept of five minus two equals three or, or I've got a bunch of M&Ms up exactly. here. Let me take a mm-hmm. couple. Let me I, eat some. I have mm-hmm. five M&Ms. If I take two of these M&Ms, how many M&Ms do I have left? Every mm-hmm. teacher understands that. If you want to teach concepts and abstractions, you have to make it concrete because that gives people overlap. They have a frame already for thinking about that. And you're taking that abstract concept and you're adapting it to frames that people already have. And that's how you teach and teach well. And that's how bad teachers suck at teaching. And it's the difference between, it's always a difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher in any context. Can I take this difficult abstract concept and can I clothe it in something that you can at least understand or have an analogy Mm -hmm. for that you can grab a hold of? Even, Even the sciences work this way where they operate on models. And the models are always wrong, but they at least give you handles, right? The model that the atom is, has a cloud of electrons that orbit a nucleus like the solar system is complete garbage. But it's a first step towards understanding something that is true about how an atom works. Newtonian mechanics operate it are by certain principles that when you actually get to the reality, none of them are actually quite right. But they do explain mostly how the world works. Right. And so- I think there's a certain kind of person that's like, wow, every venal, corrupt, evil preacher, every wolf out there uses illustrations, which of course they're they're doing, if you know about them, it's because they're effective. So of course they're doing the effective thing. But then so they're like, well, I guess 
illustrations equal bad, I guess right. concrete equals bad, I guess fun to listen to or engaging equals bad. I must make Be a principle. I must make a principle out of being abstract, out of being dense, out of not providing handles that people's minds can kind of easily go to. Because those are the things that a fraud does, and I don't want to be that. And so I'm going to swing the pendulum as as strongly in the other direction as I possibly can. And I think it becomes incredibly uncharitable. And I'm sure we've all sat under those people where we're just like, you're not being kind to me, and you're not being Christ to me. I mean, Jesus uses more metaphors and more, if I may, kind of simple, cheesy almost metaphor, like farmer type metaphors, just like stuff that everybody can a flower a bird a one of the yeah. things i was thinking as you were talking about the idea of him writing the manuscript in the chosen or whatever and <coughs> who cares whether that's true or not i mean maybe jesus being divine had divine processing speed and was able to process in the moment and really fast that's fine and some people in fact have that as human beings can just process really fast and speak extemporaneously but Even so, you see a mind at work there. You see somebody saying, okay, what's the thing that everybody understands? What's the thing that everybody in this crowd is going to know about? Okay, flowers. Okay, birds. Okay, farming. Okay, seeds. Like we all, we we live in in this culture, we all understand this stuff. Okay, shepherd and sheep. Okay, Mm -hmm. bread. Okay, wine. Okay, and also what's so universal, you know, you always, people always say, well, they lived in an agricultural society, so they understood that. Well, guess what? We still understand seeds. Everybody still understands sun and seeds and shepherds and sheep. Maybe there's things that- Fruit and trees. Right. And, yeah. They're, just they're universals. U- universals. And, and, okay, so we're not, we don't live as close to the earth as they did then. One, all of those things we still have frames of reference for. But two, okay. Is there, are there ways we can update frames of reference and make our own analogies that build off of and follow the example of what Jesus did? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why shouldn't we do that? That mm-hmm. is the example and pattern that he taught us. And that is the pattern of Proverbs. And in fact, if you look at uh, the first nine chapters of Proverbs and you take, there are, I think, 10 exhortations in the first nine chapter of Proverbs, they all follow a similar pattern of getting your attention teaching you something, and then ending with the consequences of hearing or not hearing what was just said to you. You take that pattern and that's just like, that, like what sermon or what teaching of Jesus does, does not conform to that pattern? Right. There may be some, but they're precious few. The Sermon on the Mount does in fact follow that pattern. Right. He starts out with a series of the hap- happy, blessed are, you want to be happy, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are. And he's turning people's expectations on their head at the same time, right? He's upsetting their expect, he's appealing to their desire to be happy. He's upsetting their expectations. He's getting their attention. And then he goes through a series of teachings and then he ends with a series of warnings. And the final warning is every man who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a man who built his house on a rock. And every man who doesn't, it's like a man who built his house on the sand and the rain came and the flood rose and washed away that house and great was the fall of it. Mm. And that's the end. That's how he ends. And that's, and everybody's amazed because he speaks as one with authority. But that's the pattern of every little exhortation in those 
first nine chapters of Proverbs. It's just, it's just how, it's how God teaches us and it's how good fathers teach us. Mm -hmm. And we have to be humble enough to actually recognize that and not be too, too spiritual or too suspicious of doing the work of being good preachers and teachers who understand how to connect with people, how to apply God's truth to their hearts in such a way that they don't just simply feel that you have come at their hearts and at their will, but they, you, they also feel like they've walked away with something that maybe if, if God is kind, maybe there'll be some things that just stick. Maybe not every week, <laughs> maybe not every mm -hmm. year, mm -hmm. but maybe, maybe once in a while we'll have that sermon where that's the one that we got a handle out of that, that we've never forgotten. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's really helped and shaped the way that we live as men and women trying to honor God as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as Christians in the community. So all you have to do is read Stephen King. And apparently, you yeah. understand all this stuff. Let's build a hermeneutics class <laughs> yeah, around yeah. Stephen King. Oh man! Well, as you're talking, I was just thinking. <laughs> one other thought: I just think it's a perverse society that embraces abstract, non-concrete, non-visual language, and so much of what you read, even in your newspapers, certainly in your academic writings, but but even in your popular writings are these abstract concept words, concept nouns, concept verbs, this kind of conceptual language phenomena points to such and such, such and such, which doesn't form a picture in your mind. Proverbs is just all the Lord detests dishonest scales, makes you picture a person being angry and making an angry face or something at a scale. And, mm -hmm. and, and so you have this little thing that anchors in your mind and you know, oh, okay, well, the Lord dis detests dishonest scales. I'll never forget that. Yeah. And then you imagine actually what it would, how much stickier that would be if you lived in a place where you're always at the market. Seeing scales. And mm -hmm. things are being weighed in, on scales. Right. But then you imagine the abstract, like what's, let's translate that into modern speak. What would it be like? I don't even know what it would be. Once you actually have the concrete version in it's, your it's head, it's hard to... It's really hard to... But but it is the kind of fun thing that Strunk and, Strunk and White like to point out, actually, or Orwell in his little essay. Yeah, Orwell famously, <laughs> oh, I'll just pull it up. I've done this before on this, on this podcast or the booking. Here we go. So here is one of the greatest passages in both the English language and in the Bible from the King James, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And so Orwell said, this is, actually, this is basically <coughs> how we would write it. <coughs> Objective considerations of contemporary phenomena compel the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities exhibits no tendency to be commensurate with innate capacity, but that a considerable considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably be taken into account and blah 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 and the thing is when you when you put those two in front of each other you're like okay orwell's exaggerating a little he's being silly but he's not that kind of yep. as drunk and white say a similar wind blows through mm -hmm. <laughs> the halls of modern times <laughs> even today yeah. uh, <coughs> People, people just kind of write that way. It's it's just the lazy that way that we communicate with big 
abstract conceptual words. It's the way that a lot of preachers who are trying to be faithful preach, just use, just piling up abstractions and kind of concept words that don't have images anchored to them. And it, it really is hard to follow and hard to wade through. And you got to see that the Bible uses things like, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift. It's like metaphor, more oracle language that paints a little picture in your mind and makes you understand better than you would if it was just a kind of concept statement. So Yeah, that, that sort of leads me to the other book. Well, that did lead directly to the other book that I started listening to, which is a book called Made to Stick. That's another book that I actually have owned for a really long time, like probably 10, I feel like at least 10 years. I don't remember how I got it. It might have been given to me in pastor's college by somebody. It might have been something, I feel like it might have been something that could have come to me from anybody from Stephen Baker, who teaches at our, at New Geneva Academy, to, I just don't know. I don't know how it came to me. But it, it, it was sort of like coming up in the recommendations and things like that after I listened to On Writing by Stephen King. And so, I have a copy of it. And I couldn't quite remember. I know that at least one businessman in our church had, borrow, had seen it on a bookshelf and said, oh, I've been meaning to read that. Can I borrow it? I think he never returned it. So, I, just, I went ahead and, and borrowed it on to listen to and started reading it and or listening to it rather. And it really just is about what we're talking about. It's about the nature of a proverb, what makes, if you could get to the root of what makes something sticky, if what makes something work, how would you, how would you do it? And, and I've pulled any number of things that I have said about the nature of proverbs in the course of this conversation are things that I pulled straight back out of that book that were in my head. Not, probably not everything, but a lot of it. So, I don't know, that's been interesting and worthwhile just to sit and have a couple of guys who are academics, I think, at least one of them. I think one of them's at Stanford or whatever, but just like, can we put the proverb under a microscope and dissect it mm -hmm. and figure out what makes it tick and how it works and how, how we can become better communicators across the board? And a, a large part of the, a large part of that, of their aim is more like marketing or sure. business communications, things like that. How do you create like the one phrase that guides and governs decisions as a company? Southwest Airlines is the low cost airfare company. And so when somebody comes and says, well, we did a survey and it seems like people would really appreciate it if we offered a chicken Caesar salad on the flights instead of just peanuts. The question is, how does that make us the low-cost airfare company? It doesn't. It raises prices. That's not what we're here for. That's not who we are. We are the low-cost airfare company or the low-cost air, low airline or whatever it actually is. It's some version of that that's just like really simple, really direct, really concrete that, of course, there are any number of factors, sure. but... Hmm. that sort of thing so i started listening to that more in bits and chunks I'm not as drawn into it as stephen king and there's a lot to process with it but just sort of like i mean they're talking about aesop and they're talking about jesus and they're talking about just everything from 
they're going to tell you things like where there's smoke, there's fire is in 130, some version of that is in 132 Mm -hmm. different cultures. Hmm. Why in its effort, the book actually starts, I think in the introduction with the kidney story with urban legends. Mm -hmm. How do these urban legends, like we all know the kidney story, a girl comes up to somebody at a bar and approaches a, a man at a bar and offers to buy him a drink and he wait and she's beautiful and the next thing he knows he wakes up and he's in a tub of ice and he's freezing and there's a sign right in front of him that says don't move call 911 and so he does he calls 911 and and explains what's going on and the operator is like yeah we've seen this before is there a tube yeah there's a tube okay well there's a gang of kidney harvesters that are going around and it's this big cautionary tale and i just gave you the whole story because it stuck mm-hmm. all of those little concrete details all of the and it could be better told and i could be if i were a better storyteller i could have made it that much more compelling but it's just an urban legend so is razor blades in apples, apples in, yeah. in apples and candy right? and we all build our halloweens around that stupid urban le- like we treat our neighbors a certain way. We've designed our the kids' routes and everything around that urban legend, which is just amazing. It has to me. never happened. It has never happened. There was one. <coughs> there is one instance of a kid who who died on Halloween. It was a kid who got who found his parents' stash of drugs and OD'd on them. Some little kid like thought it was like cocaine was pixie sticks or something like that and the parents tried to take it and put it sprinkle it through the halloween candy to cover their their tracks play it off like the urban legend to play it off like the urban legend and the reason i know that is because they bring it up in the book wow so but yeah anyhow it's just like how do these urban legends work how do they stick how do how does the lie travel faster than the truth how how do the how do these proverbs just sort of like arise across multiple cultures and how do they burden a hand in hand is worth two in the bush is another one that is just a universal across multiple cultures how do they work and what makes them work and how do we sort of isolate that can we figure out like is there a formula like is just a part of what what that what that book is about so i just thought well i don't know listening to that maybe it'll translate maybe it'll give me a thought or an inspiration or a little bit of nugget of something as I'm preaching through Proverbs mm-hmm. that helps me make these sermons just a little bit more sticky or a little bit more helpful. To what people. I think is actually helpful about a book like that is you actually do see the places where you can abuse it. Because, for example, as you're talking about urban legends, it's like <coughs> so much of stickiness is rooted in fear. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, when, absolutely. Yeah. When I was a kid, the one was gay people are putting needles in phone. There, there used to be this thing called a, a phone booth. A phone booth, <laughs> and you'd reach into the change. Yep, uh, I remember return. that one too. And, and the yeah. whole idea is to give everybody AIDS. It is That's to give right. everybody AIDS. Yeah, just this universe. Like everybody believed that we were. We all lived in fear. It was just part of the stranger danger yep. culture that we grew. Mm-hmm. Up, we all grew up with. And, and in any case. It is easy. I mean, it's you, you want to talk about the success of somebody like Donald Trump, like it or loathe it. A lot of it is based on playing to 
people's fears and effectively conjuring up something to be scared of and saying, I'm mm-hmm. the solution to the problem. I mean, it's how most rabble rousing politicians or whatever you want to call them work. It's, yeah. it's how a demagogue yeah. operates by saying there's something to be really scared of and the only thing that can protect you is is me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that, I mean, let me see if I can. Uh, oh, yeah, right here. Here are the six principles that they, they draw out. Right. It's got to be simple, unexpected. I'm just going to go through and apply each of these to our famous attack the crow metaphor. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> definitely Sim- unexpected. Simple, unexpected, concrete. Yeah, crows are concrete, yeah. <laughs> Credible. Totally credible. Mm-hmm. I attack a crow every day. Right. Emotional, and that's where fear is. Right? Yeah. And then, and then story. Yeah. I mean, it's fear just... is an easier emotion to conjure uh-huh. than, than happiness, <laughs> for example. Negative emotions are easier to rile up quicker. Yeah. You're, to, to get somebody angry, it's not that hard. Whereas to make them say, hmm, I feel thoughtfully excited about this is quite the trick. Yeah. They also talk about just how good advertisers have gotten at this sort of, of thing. And that actual, the, actually the National Ad Council is really good. You're, this is your brain. This is your brain on mm-hmm. drugs. Get mm-hmm. the picture. Stuff like that. That yep. just like, we all remember that. Right. Yep. We've never forgotten it. It's been 20, 30 years since I've seen it. Probably over 30 years since I've seen it. But I've never forgotten it. Mm-hmm. Never will. Unless God takes my brain away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I just mean, I mean, like, this is one of those things that... Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's, <coughs> it's amazing. And that sticks precisely because it's simple, because it's emotional, it's scary, it's, yeah. I mean, it's all these things. It's all of those things. It's, con- it's unexpected, it's concrete, it has every, a- every element that you want. Right. And, and it's that's not why that, it works. It's not that Jesus, I mean, Jesus mm-hmm. and the Proverbs, all these things actually do, since I'm talking about fear, they do play to fear. I mean, Jesus plays to the fear of hell, if I can put it that way, more than, more than anyone in the scriptures. You just have to play to the right kind of fear. Right, yeah. The not fear the of God, kind, right? right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, there's a cheap way to do it. But, but actually thinking about these kinds of things concretely helps you to see places where you, where you are being cheap or where you're tempted to be being yeah. cheap. Because you've got a frame of reference for it, so you can kind of see yourself. So, so well, it's I just actually, like Ben said in his sermon on controlling your emotions a couple of weeks ago. Fear, not just fear of God, but fear of death. Mm-hmm. You know, is just constant, like consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, constant in Proverbs. Well, you just read one in your sermon last week. <laughs> the eye that uh, scorns its <laughs> scorns mother. <laughs> Or something along those lines will be yep. plucked out by the by ravens. Ravens of the valley. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's awesome not parable. even true exactly. I mean, it probably is actually literally true in some cases, but this is just, let's associate That's something point. nasty yeah. with something bad. And it doesn't matter whether that's literally what's going to happen. We're just saying... The kinds, the, of people, the kinds of people who have vultures pluck out their eyes, yeah. the kind of people who die horrible death are the kind of people that despise their parents. And so it's incredibly effective and there's nothing cheap about it. And yet it is so stark and so simple that you could see yourself trying to do something like that and stumbling into being cheap if you weren't careful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So we don't want to be cheap and cheesy and stupid, but we want to, we want to 
we do want to be effective, right? We do want to communicate. Right. We do want people to understand the simple truths of God's word and in such a way that it actually gives them something that's helpful, that they can hold on to, that they can apply and that will actually change the way they live on a day-to-day basis so that they grow in godliness and are more like Christ. And so, hey, mm-hmm. that means some elbow grease, right? That means that means some effort. And and the good thing about that kind of effort is that it pays dividends all over the place. So if you manage to come away from your sermon prep with a handle, you don't just think, well, yay, that little handle worked that one time. Mm-hmm. No, now you've got a handle that you can use in your counseling when you're sitting across the table mm-hmm. from people in other sermons, subsequent sermons down the yeah. line, little things. Like, I mean, and, and, and it's just shorthand and it becomes shorthand the way that all kinds of things are in a family. And so, every congregation where there's real shepherding and real fatherhood is going to have its own kind of, kind of shorthand, its own like shared stories, its own little one-liners. And if they're really good, they make sense to somebody off the street. Mm-hmm. But in a family, they don't have to always make sense to somebody off the street as long mm-hmm. as they make sense to the family. Right? But I think most people off the street don't resent that. In, in other words, I think sometimes there have been people who have said, well, Nathan, why do you use certain shorthand in your podcasts over the years? Why do you return to certain jokes that you made in a f- previous podcast or um, at, at our previous church, uh, Pastor Tim Bailey, uh, before he retired, had a lot of those kinds of things. And sometimes people They've would accumulated say, over the years. Right. And, and it, yeah, it was sort of a almost a criticism that you heard of, like we have that you've developed this sort of inside language full of inside jokes. Mm -hmm. But rarely did I ever hear that criticism from someone who actually themselves was like, oh no, I couldn't understand. And it was was always somebody who was kind of concerned that some other hypothetical person out there would would have that problem. Whereas most people, when they go to someone's house, they see the inside jokes, they're like, ha ha, sweet inside jokes. And then they and I'm not saying and, that. Uh, and, and with that, I won't, that means there's a culture here, there's a life here, and I kind of want to be part of it. And also, I'm not an idiot, which means that I can 80% take a pretty good guess what, <laughs> what this is and probably be yeah, right, right more often than not. That's right. And the fact that so many churches don't have that is not necessarily a testimony to the fact that they're better communicators. It's a testimony to the fact that they don't have any kind of family culture. Right. And that mm-hmm. the pastor isn't much of a father. Right. So you get to the place where it's like you've, be- it's sort of like an adolescent criticism, really, where you've become aware of the fact that your father has his ways of speaking and his jokes and his things. And because you've become aware of it, you are now annoyed by it mm-hmm. and embarrassed of it. So well, why don't we push, th- we need to push through that. Mm-hmm. We need to push through that. And, are there places where it's inhospitable or sure. uncharitable if you're only speaking in insider language? Absolutely. Every, every, every family that has guests over can run the risk of just sort of making sure that their guest feels like the perpetual outsider who's never actually invited into the warmth of the family. Sure. That's something we all have. But you, part of the warmth of the family is it has a culture. It has its inside jokes. It has its shorthand. And we invite other people into right. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you're sympathetic to something or to someone, part of the joy is learning that shorthand. And I think we've all experienced this in stupid ways. I certainly have with 
TV shows. I grew up with The Simpsons, which had so many inside jokes and pop culture references and references to old movies that as a child I didn't understand. But because it was something that I just liked and enjoyed, I was like, okay, well, maybe I need to watch Citizen Kane so I can understand what this extended Citizen Kane parody is. Maybe I need to see mm-hmm. more things. So it's a dumb example, but it was a thing that I was sympathetic to, and therefore it was fun to learn to speak its language. And I think I've certainly been part of families and dynamics like that, where you walk into the house and you're like, oh, this is fun. I want to hear these stories. I want to know why they're making these jokes. I want to. Yeah. So I do think it can't, it's a really adolescent. Sure, there's ways where we all need to learn to be more hospitable to outsiders. But I think oftentimes mm-hmm. that specific complaint comes from a, a really immature point of view. Yeah, I mean, that just isn't giving the same basic sympathy to the pastor that they would give to the Simpsons. Exactly. Yeah. And I've, I've recognized as we're just not long out of our first year of having services, Mm -hmm. we need some of that stuff. And so what, like, I don't know. And insofar as we've built it, it's been good. And so far as people start to be comfortable, you know, our church is now, what, a year and a half old or something. And I've so, got a really dopey mm-hmm. running Joel Osteen joke that is yeah, eight, mu- eight, eight months old. Right. <laughs> I just kind of find a way to throw it out there every once in a while because I think, it, I think it's funny. Yep. And That's one person at least. <laughs> yeah. At, at least there are always a couple of people that make... <laughs> try to make me not feel dumb about being the only one that thinks it's funny. no every every pastor every dad has to have a couple of, a couple of those like oh, i think this is funny so yes so make it sticky <laughs> make it stick make it make stick. stick make it keep it secret keep it safe so that that one i'm it's only i'm only uh i don't think i'm quite halfway into that book yet i just want to say i heard a preacher's preach that I have, that I think me and Jake both heard him preach. He preached for Tim's retirement service a couple of weeks ago. And he had a little dorky, jokey saying or something like that. He was talking about the past. And he said, the past is like perfume. You can enjoy the scent, but you shouldn't drink it. The idea mm-hmm. being you can't just indulge yourself in constant navel yeah. gazing and looking back at the past. But you can say, huh, yeah, you can enjoy some nostalgia now and then. And because he used a little perfume analogy, I still remember it. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's, been, it's just stuck with me and it's been helpful. And I could see a pastor sitting there coming up with the perfume analogy and being like, well, I don't want to be corny. I don't want to be jokey. I don't want to be one of those pastors who has these little stupid hooks. I don't, I don't want everybody to laugh. And it's just like, I'm so thankful that this man didn't feel self-conscious mm-hmm. about just giving me a dumb yeah. little preacher thing that helped me remember because it, it's several mm-hmm. weeks later and I still remember it. Yeah. And it's a helpful thought. Yeah. All right, Jake, third book. The third book is the book that I pivoted to when I gave up Relentless by Tim Grover. Mm-hmm. It's a book called Endure. And this one is by Cameron Haynes. There's another book called Endure by a guy named Alex Hutchinson. And I've read that too. I read that several years ago. That book is about the limits of human performance and where are our actual limits. And so like the test cases are, I think, running a breaking the four minute mile barrier or something like that. And, and just the phenomenon, it talks about things like the phenomenon of how something is impossible. And then once somebody does it, 
then seven, 10 other people do it within like a year or two. And how, so how much of that is like mental barriers? How much of it's your mind or whatever? This isn't that book. That's a book I read a while ago and I really liked it and thought it was cool. This book has the same name, but it's a guy named Cameron Haynes. I didn't know much of anything about the book, except that it was like, it's fairly new. A lot of people have been saying it's really great, really cool. It's like top of the New York Times bestseller stuff. And so I was like, all right, I guess we'll try this one. Turns out the guy is a bow hunter who like runs ultra marathons and things like that. And shapes his life around being the best bow hunter that he can be. Mm. And so it's just more sort of manly, inspirational, do hard things. People don't have to understand you. Know what you want, go get it. Kind of rah-rah stuff with plenty of coarse or vulgar language. But I don't know. It's been kind of a fun little, little thing. Like lots of these guys, he's got broken childhood with an alcoholic absentee dad and it's not hard to see the scars and see and his dad was also like like a famous runner <coughs> that he was trying to live up it's just like he's proven to his dad that he was worth sticking around for and that he's pretty great like that's clearly his motivation and mm-hmm. what drives him in a pretty broken broken way but it's driven him to the extremes of elite human performance and that's interesting interesting to see what people can do when they push themselves and Mm -hmm. uh, it's just been kind of fun but vulgar course come for the human endurance stay for the vulgarity and yeah i guess i guess or leave so so yeah it's similar to like david goggins sure you're familiar with who he is quite the character that david goggins Yep. Similar to that sort of thing. In fact, Goggins is a friend and they, he talks about being buddies with Goggins and Goggins, I think, wrote the afterword. And so, you know, it's in that vein of intense to the point of insanity or borderline insanity, but mm-hmm. also cool and inspiring when taken with some healthy moderation. Cum grano salis with a grain of salt. Hey, that's an aphorism, aphoristic <coughs> phrase. Yep. You watch yourself. You step back and watch yourself. You do it all the time. Oh, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. I know. You never stop doing well, it. You preached a sermon where you gave a bunch of those, and then I caught myself just saying, when in Rome, and all these kinds of things all day. Oh, and Barfield said, one of the, one of the lesser read inklings, mm-hmm. probably for good reason. But he said, language, if you look at it from one perspective, is nothing more than like a tissue of dead metaphors <laughs> that you've forgotten that they were metaphors, all mm-hmm. the words that you use or the phrases. Yeah, well, it's very that's, true. That's and, and what's interesting too is the way that our shorthand is informed by our music and movies and television, mm-hmm. right? So, so much of our aphoristic speech is actually we're going to drop a movie reference and mm. everybody knows what that means when when you say almost there or <laughs> i have you now <laughs> yeah <laughs> perfect right. examples of what you're talking about if, if you say uh, yeah. good yeah i said i said it earlier going. today in a palpatine voice it, it carries a whole lot of 
mm-hmm. of subtext. Right. I said mm-hmm. good. And in the context, Jake knew I meant, oh, the thing you're talking about would be fun, but a very, very bad thing to do. And <laughs> we're uncovering all our worst instincts. And I got all that by. There is one other thought I have about everything in terms of stickiness and all that, which is there's a certain kind of person who plunders books and movies and the great works of literature for aphorisms and for little thoughts. And they might read like Plato's Republic or something and they'll barely get anything out of it, but Mm. they'll have like their three little aphorisms. And I think that kind of person is dot, 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 a great thinker and communicator. I have great respect for people who do that. All the best thinkers and communicators that I know are actually pretty pragmatic about the way that they use <laughs> Western civilization. They're, they're not afraid to say, well, I read Plato and he gave me these two things. And these two things are the two things that are helpful. Or I read such and such a book. Or I actually think within reason, used well, it's not bad to simply plunder things and find what's helpful to you. I do use the word plunder because that's what it is. You're being a little bit, you're being a little bit of a Viking and maybe trampling over some of the meaning that was in any given text just to, to find your one little but that's just, that's catch just, of gold or whatever. That's just, I just think that's good reading. What is the point? What is the purpose of reading something? If it is not going to give you something that changes how you think, that you can come away with, that you can hold on to, you're not actually being a good reader. If you don't approach something with intent to devour and absorb and use. Yeah, I, like, I mean, I think yeah, there are some... A, oh, God. Well, it, <clears throat> it's, it's a kind of a question. Do you want the nugget or do you want the structure of that guy's thought? What do you want to stick or you how can much observe do you have the, time, You can observe you know? the structure of that guy's thought. Mm. But what's the point? Is it just simply to observe? No. How I, other people think? Absorb. Absorb is what I... Because I meant like, if you want his, his thought to change the way you think, I'm not trying to quibble over semantics, but there's different ways you go about getting something to take with it, you and devour. It just know? reminds me of Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book, mm. which I read... Uh, I read that book. Actually, uh, another a pastor friend of mine let me borrow that book while I was his intern, Sandy Halsey. Mm-hmm. I was interning for him down at his church in Mississippi, and that book was on his shelf. And he was like, hey, maybe you should read this and change the way that I read. Huh. Because Adler is just like, books are not artifacts. You don't treat them as artifacts. Mm-hmm. You don't come and casually observe them passively. Like, that's a really masturbatory way to approach a book. Mm-hmm. It's really like lame, pseudo-intellectual. Nobody who's ever done anything has ever thought that way about a book. Come with a pencil in hand, be ready to mark it up, be ready to engage it, be ready to ask questions of it, mm-hmm. be ready to figure out what you can, what you, he wants you to take away and what you th- think you should take away and what you shouldn't take away. And Well, the only thing I would add to that is there's different books 
and books yeah, books right. are intended for different purposes and they achieve different purposes. And yeah. so if you're a Viking warrior, to stick with my amazingly sticky mm-hmm. analogy, maybe you're walking into the city of the king and the king is going to give you your marching orders and he's going to tell you exactly what kind of warrior you should be and what your next campaign is. That's one kind of city. Maybe you're walking into a village that just needs to be raised so that you can find the one little cache of gold and jewels that the village... In other words, yeah, some, some books absolutely. are there to be plundered for the two aphorisms that they're worth. Some books are to be submitted to humbly and said, well, okay, Tolstoy knows better than me. So if he wants to yammer on about something that I don't quite understand, then I'm here for it because I trust him. This other guy, I don't trust to give me more than two useful thoughts. And so I'm blazing through this thing, extracting those thoughts as brutally as possible and discarding everything else. Sure. And then there's the guy who's doing what you say. He's going to something like the Republic, which probably has a lot more than he has time for. And he's just going to treat it like a village to raise. Right. And you can do that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially so. with pagan, with godless pagans. Well, like, yeah, you know, definitely. Yeah. If you teach yourself to just be a village raiser, then I think you're probably not that's that's probably not helpful, especially if you approach scripture that way. But you have to be. It's uh, not humble. No, it's not actually. And there are other authors who aren't scripture who are just God blessed them with wisdom and with wit and with good thinking, and they're worth just submitting and living in whatever headspace. So you know, but you have to know the difference between the two, and you have to be a little bit pragmatic, so to speak, in, in the choices that you make. You have to realize, like Ben was just saying, that you don't have all the time in the world. So. Maybe you'd love to submit yourself to Plato for 40 hours. We, but wouldn't we all? Yeah, wouldn't we all? But instead, you just need that cave analogy <laughs> so you can <laughs> make internet videos with it <laughs> or, or whatever. So you can understand, make Star Wars analogies. Okay. I'm sorry, but a human illusion sketch is appearing in my brain. Uh-oh. <laughs> hey, you want some Proverbs? Sure. I just pulled up that list that I had. Yeah. I may have cut it down for the sermon, but this is... Why don't you say the first part and let me me and Ben finish? Early to bed. Early to rise. Makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. A friend in need. It's a friend indeed. A stitch in time. Saves nine. nine. Red sky at night. Sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning. (laughs) Sailor's morning. Sailor take warning. Sailor take warning. An apple a day. Keeps Keeps the the doctor doctor away. away. In your face, doctor. And there's one that we never even bother finishing. We're so familiar with it. Yeah. Just an apple a day. Look before you... You leap. You leap. Don't make mountains out of... Molehills. It takes one to... No one. Yep. Fools rush in where... Angels fear to tread. Give credit where... Credit is due. Don't judge a book. By its cover. Where there's smoke. There's fire. When in Rome... Do as the Romans. That's another one we never finish. Yep. The journey of a thousand miles begins... With a single step. A fool and his money... Are soon parted. Actions speak louder than... (laughs) Words. The squeaky wheel... Gets the grease. A watched pot... Never boils. You are what you... Eat. Just all kinds of things. And that's not even things that come from scripture, like pride comes before... (laughs) A fall... Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Out of the overflow of the heart. The mouth mouth speaks. speaks. Just all kinds of things like that. Yeah. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, All right. I like the genre of things that people think come from scripture. (laughs) God helps those who? Help themselves. (laughs) 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 
<coughs> money is the root of all, all evil. evil. <laughs> the love of money, Ben. <coughs> what? What'd you say? <laughs> Nothing. I didn't say anything. Okay. Money's the root of all evil. The, yeah, money's, money's all great. How it goes. I, uh, I love money. Wait. No. Uh, <laughs> 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 all right. Bye. Go to Patreon. Here's a. How can we make so? Let's apply everything we learned. How how can we use stickiness to make people go to Patreon? A stitch in Patreon <laughs> makes keeps the doctor away. You know what we always do for the price of a cup of coffee. Yeah, for the price of a cup of coffee. That is exactly the kind mm-hmm. of proverbial sticky idea that mm-hmm. actually translates. For the price of a cup of coffee yeah, for the price a month, of- one cup of coffee a month, you get access to. Well, you, well, I'll tell you, you get access to our Discord where you can discuss all these thoughts and ideas and episodes and news stories and stuff with yours. Yours is, what's the plural of yours? There is no plural. Y'all, that's with y'all's, y'all's truly. No. <coughs> <coughs> Videos that me and Ben do on occasion. But I... <coughs> We're all dying. Behind the scenes looks, all <coughs> this kind of stuff. Oh, this long COVID. Oh, why didn't I get my fourth booster? Oh, at least Joe Biden has a booster for my one-year-old now. Some scintillating political commentary to end the episode. Patreon, an apple a day to Patreon. Keeps the doctor of <coughs> insanity away. Until next time. Stay sane.